just like that, the second hour is here. Friday edition. Outkick 360 rolls on. So we broadcast live in New York with Fox. Clay Travis will join us uh, coming up in a matter of minutes. Chad, we uh, we took in the Sweet 16 last night. Madison Square Garden. Tournament was back for the first time since 2014, but only the third time we've seen it at the Garden at MSG in like 50 years, which is crazy to think about for as many games as they have hosted the NCAA tournament over the course of the, the history, the long history and storied history of the building. Uh, it was awesome. And here's hoping that they get back in more of a, a, a scheduling rhythm with the tournament because for the at least foreseeable future, the NIT is going to be played in Vegas. I really think Brooklyn, when they built the Barclays Center, stole from that a lot. You started seeing events go through Brooklyn and not uh, Madison Square Garden in Manhattan. And uh, our first experience there last night did not disappoint. Terrific venue. So much history there. Uh, fun walking around uh, last night and taking in that game. And I'm, I'm with you. You know, big events like NCAA tournament regional mm-hmm. finals. I mean, that the bigger the city, the bigger the spotlight, I think it adds to it. So here's to hoping that it's a once every four year type rotation that the East Regional Final will be in New York City at Madison Square Garden. And the reason why it won't be a Final Four is because they, they, they can take fit the a football stadium. To a, yeah, yeah. They, a dome. They can sell tickets to a football stadium for a basketball NRG game. And in, in Houston will be the host of the Final Four, which is just the worst atmosphere for basketball. But that's neither here nor there. Yeah. That's all about selling a tickets cavern. and making making the most money as as much money as possible. Of course, uh, plenty of underdog stories. Uh, we get a chance to see another one tonight, potentially with Princeton as they take on Creighton. The winner will then advance to the Elite Eight to take on either Alabama or San Diego State. But, Chad, with Furman's victory over Virginia in the opening round, uh, Kevin Harlan had a great call of the three that won it for Furman and advanced them to the round of 32 in a big upset. And CBS tweeted out, the video of what was a great call and Harlan's reaction to that tweet is interesting, but here's the call and the video from CBS. Clark in a straight check. Oh, he And then he holds the arms out because he wants to hold the moment, right, with no one else jumping in. And he's not happy with the fact that they tweeted out the behind-the-scenes look of the call um, because he wants that to be, you know, voice only and the mannerisms behind the scenes he doesn't really want out there for everyone to see. He says it's 110% organic uh, with his reaction. He nearly fell out of his chair as he backs up. And he goes – Sincerely, the, the last thing you're thinking about is that the camera's on you. I think I can join a chorus of other announcers who do not like the camera. This is kind of a personal space, and I've voiced my concern to both CBS and Turner. He said this with uh, Richard Deitch on a, a recent podcast. Um, and he said, kind of embarrassed by it. I'm not comfortable with it. I understand why CBS would want to use that, and I guess I trust my bosses more than I trust myself in this situation. But at the same time, if they asked my preference, I would have said, please don't put that up there. And I still feel the same way about it. Um, I'm, I, 
I'm intrigued by why he doesn't like this so much because I like the behind-the-scenes look yeah. of how the call goes down, and you can see the momentum build when they threw that half-court pass to no one. Furman gets it, quick three, bam, ball game. And the reaction from everyone was awesome. But Harlan doesn't like the behind-the-scenes camera on him. Kevin Harlan is terrific. He's unbelievable. Off, he is so, so good yes. at everything he does. And that call is another example with the energy he has on that shot is, is incredible. And the fact that we get to see it, I think, is all the better yeah. uh, to watch that, that genuine, authentic reaction to that moment from Kevin Harlan. I don't know what he's talking about with it being a sacred space for broadcasters. I mean, you're calling a game. You have the cameras on you in the open. It's not like you're not on TV at some point. You know, at halftime, you come back, and the camera's going to be turned around on you. I, I, don't, I, I don't know where he's going with that. That, that seems a little uh, overly self-important about the, that area being a sacred space and not having a camera on you. I, I, don't, I, don't, well, I don't get that I, part of yeah, it. Yeah, I don't think he's camera shy. I, I think it was more of the, kind of the reaction to the feedback of you know, him like, telling the, the, the way he was aggressive and saying, hey, don't say anything by holding the arms out. Like, just let's let it breathe. I appreciate that, though. Like, that made for a better call than everyone talking over each other. They do a good job uh, in all the booths for that, for that matter when it comes down to the classic call for the NCAA tournament. They really do. And I, I'll tell you who else appreciates it. Stan Van Gundy sure. appreciates it to know that I need to lay out on this one and not say anything and let the call go before I, I'm allowed to speak again. Uh, was it Bonner, I think, is the other yes. uh, guy? A three-person basketball game booth is difficult. Yes. And I don't know how they pull it off they all the time. Well. And to have two analysts speak close to the same amount of time over a broadcast, I think is nearly impossible. One is naturally going to take over a little bit in that analyst spot. I don't, I don't like it. I, I think they do a really good job with it in the NCAA tournament. It's just not my personal preference. I, I think the games are better – when it's play-by-play person and then your color commentator and not a third that's on the broadcast. That, that's personal preference for me, but they do it well with Turner. They, they have mastered it for the NCAA tournament because these broadcasts are stellar every single year. This is Nance's final tournament. Last time to give his tie to his yeah, favorite I, player. Of the, I haven't of seen the that recently, four. though. Has he stopped doing that? I think he stopped because everybody made fun of him. Oh. <laughs> I think we're probably partially to blame because you know we're one of the shows that made fun of it. Yeah, uh, I, I feel like he mentioned that he was going to stop that that ceremony. I think because he maybe he didn't like that. He everybody... gave it to his favorite player or whatever in the final four. Yeah, the champion. And he I mean, I think that's the tie. I think that's cool. Yeah, like, no, I mean, you're going to get a lot of stuff if you're the most outstanding player of a final four. But even if it's not the MVP, it's kind of Nance's. This is my favorite player of the tournament, right? That that wins the national title. Yeah. And he hands them the tie. And that's if you're the guy getting the tie, it's pretty cool. Like you got Jim Nance's tie at the end of a final four that you won and won a national championship. I got no issue with that. I got no beef with Jim Nance over that. I just think it's hilarious that he's bestowing he's bequeathing his tie to someone at the end of the tournament. Now he's he's staying on with the other major events that he calls, you know, NFL. Uh, of course, uh, the Masters who go from the Final Four of the championship game straight to Augusta uh, for that week uh, for the Masters again. Um, Ian Eagle, I believe, is stepping in for him next year as the lead voice. He, and he is he's great, too. He's really good. Kevin Harlan, Ian Eagle, Jim Nance, obviously, those guys are all 
terrific at what they do. Nance will never give up golf. Uh, he is a golfer. He's got a golf hole at his home. He was a college golfer at the University of Houston. Like that to me is the sport that he's not ever going to give up, right? If he starts yeah. relinquishing certain things like the Final Four, he's going to be calling golf. That, that to me is, seems like that's sort of his passion project. Chad, World Athletics, the, the international governing body for track and field, they have officially banned transgender athletes from competing in all women's events. And what is a, a victory for women in this? Uh, because the decision overturns their initial proposal, uh, which was back in January, right, right as the, we hit 2023, that would allow biological men to compete against women uh, if they had a certain low testosterone level. Um, measured, and now they're doing away with that. The World Athletics Council has today taken a decisive action to protect the female category in our sport. That from the World Athletics president, Sebastian Coe. And I wonder now, will we see other governing bodies? um, Will they step up and do the same thing? Will they follow the lead here? Because this was a group that allowed it, and they were testing certain levels for testosterone, and then they flipped it within a matter of months. So we just got done talking about the NCAA and their lack of leadership and decision-making and how now NIL and everything going on, it's sort of fallen apart with the NCAA and their ability to mm-hmm. legislate any of that because there's not clear, concise rules with it. And they want someone else to make clear, concise rules. I applaud this organization because here is a very clear, concise rule about transgender athletes not competing in the women's division. This is as basic as you get with a ruling. This is sound, fundamental leadership at its best. Give me a clear rule. Give me the explanation for it. It doesn't really need an explanation Mm -hmm. because we know why biological men don't compete against women in sports. I think everyone understands that. And now here there's no gray area. So I I love this. I, I I hope a lot of other sports groups, agencies out there will take the same common sense approach and, and have this level of leadership. Um, and then on the, on the flip side of things, there's a former PGA Tour player, John Peterson, who went after the transgender golfer Haley Davidson in a back and forth on social media where he's won a, uh, Peterson won a national championship at LSU, uh, played on the tour for years, father of four, and he's also echoing, for the most part, everything that we've said in this. Uh, and the back and forth, I mean, he, he eviscerates her, honestly. He said, thank God that it lost. Um, and he says, I know you're a man playing against women, and you still can't win. I, I'd beat you 10 and 8 and then arm wrestle your cheating face off. I mean, that's, he's going at them harsh. And by the way, like, I wouldn't say it. I would say her or whatever – she would like to be referred to as. I have no issue with that. Right. But also, it doesn't have to compete uh, w- with you know, the stance of biological men and biological women. Uh, if she would like to play, it should be on the men's course. Yeah. And then the guys should call her she or whatever she wants to be called. I'm, right. I'm with you on that. But it should not be allowed to compete with the women. This is just so base-level common sense on all of these rulings and i just wish everyone would rule on this high school federations everywhere so we don't have to talk about the stupidity anymore 
Because if everyone came out and, and had leadership like this and just made a hard and fast rule against it, we're probably not talking about it anymore because it's a huge victory for women's sports, A, and it's no longer an issue because it's not allowed. Right. So let's, let's get there with every other agency. Chad, Will Levis is all the talk right now. It's because it's the pro day. And guess who is taking him to dinner tonight? Frank Reich? Yes. The oh, Carolina Panthers my. will be going to dinner with Will Levis. Um, there's no chance of this, right? No. Are we back around to him being a possible number one overall selection? Should we I, read into this? I hope not. No, I mean, I, I think that they're doing their, their due diligence and looking at every quarterback for that number one spot. So, I mean, I would take him out to dinner also. But I don't think that – you know, this dinner is going to swing uh, the Panthers in his favor to be the number one overall pick. But here, see, I, it'd be one hell of a dinner. I really great f- conversationalist that Will Levis. We got to draft this guy number one overall. Did you hear that story he said between appetizers in the main course? <laughs> Did you guys catch that story? Terrific story. Really held the room well and held court the whole time. We must draft this man number one overall. So the other teams, specifically there, the Seattle Seahawks, who draft what fifth and the Tennessee Titans, who draft 11th. Uh, specifically, um, those two being reported from Albert Breer as the teams that have interest in Will Levis, at least based on who they've sent, which would also include head coach Mike Vrabel, and from the Seahawks, Pete Carroll is there, and, and both general managers for the organizations are there too. Sometimes you send the scout or the offensive coordinator along with the GM, or you send the coach. These two uh, teams sending both. And there's a chance there. I think the Titans are one of the more unpredictable teams going into the draft because of where they select at 11 and how they would need to move up to get ahead of potentially Indy. You know, maybe you get to Arizona. And if you're Seattle and you really want your guy, you need to also get ahead of Indy because they're going to take one of the two remaining quarterbacks available, presumably if they hold it four. Well, and you put this out there a while back for the Titans that – don't sleep on quarterback as a possibility. And we have now seen evidence and signs that you were right to say that, that you can't sleep on quarterback in this draft with the Titans. And also, like uh, the, from a Panthers perspective, um, don't you – I mean, you'd make the trade knowing who you're going with, don't you? Why oh, would you yeah. give up the capital that they did if you don't – if you're not certain – that you have a franchise quarterback selected at number one. Well, I, I think you there's not four of those guys. You don't necessarily right? have to know exactly who you're taking. You would have to know that we believe one of these two or three guys is our franchise quarterback. We believe all, you know, whether it be one, two, three, four, whatever, whatever the number is, you don't trade up and make that move unless you believe your franchise quarterback is, is a they're at number one, and that's who you're trading up to get. Right. You don't have to have your mind made up. I feel like they did. I feel like you make a move like that knowing, like, hey, we're drafting Bryce Young, you know, as an example. Mm-hmm. But you would just need to know that, well, we're down to these two, and we think either one's going to be a great quarterback. Now we just have to make the right choice. And I, I think Frank Reich has a lot of say in this. You don't bring him in to tell him what to do uh, from David Tepper's point of view. Now, he can absolutely – say, hey, we're going in this direction, and I want to know what your thoughts are on it. But I don't think Frank Reich takes that gig 
to just be told, hey, this is the quarterback we want in the draft. Here's our plan. I think those things mesh. And then Reich is going to pick his guy. I can totally see him with C.J. Stroud. But I could also see Frank Reich really liking Will Levis. Yeah. But you don't have to trade up to one to get him. So I'm not buying that it's a Will Levis pick at one. I just don't. Not, not to be overly critical of Will Levis here. I just do not understand why someone would say, I love Will Levis, but I don't love C.J. Stroud. Based on production. As an example. Bryce Young. Or you just go to the ceiling e- in my mock is. and you take the, the quarterback with the highest ceiling, which is just on raw talent, athleticism, and potential. It's Anthony Richardson. Based on what we've seen and how you compare him to some of the other quarterbacks who have been through the league. In a Carolina's case, it's Cam Newton. Right? Yeah. Hit us up with your thoughts at Outkick360 on social. Clay Travis, just uh, around the corner here. He's going to pop in studio with us live as we broadcast here in New York. More coming across the Outkick Network for Outkick 360. Chad Austin Eckler says he's underpaid. And... Speculation is there could be a trade around draft time. I don't think the Chargers can afford to trade this guy. But he is using his leverage at the right time. Um, And when you look at the stats, I mean, he is dominating on offense. We'll hit that, plus get back into Nick Saban and Nate Oates as Bama takes on San Diego State. Coming up later this evening, Clay Travis joins us and sits down here in the Brian Kilmeade studio. as we broadcast live in New York. Clay, what's up? Look at this jacket. I know. I'm ready for Easter. Uh, I'm going to show up Jesse Waters later tonight. This looks like something Rick Pitino would wear uh, at the Derby. I am uh, still (laughs) in crushed spirits over the uh, Madison Square Garden game last night. Yeah. We had the best possible seats for the worst possible game. Madison Square uh, Garden was cool, though. First time for all of us. Yeah, I guess. That experience was all right. I don't really care about arenas. It was not. uh, Everyone keeps offering condolences, and my response is, I mean, I've, I've lived through more disappointing games than that but that was is there any is there any other team that is one and eight in sweet 16 games no i mean that's I, a I, tough I, that's I, that is i'd really be hard difficult. pressed to find a power five program that would have that record there may be like some mid-majors that have gotten there a number of times and never get past it but i don't know any power five school that's been there that many times to only win once yeah it was brutal and so anyway and it's florida atlantic too right it's not, well and not, not only Kansas that State i mean they were up State. you know with yeah. They're up, up six by with six 12 with, minutes left. Yeah, right. And they'd had to complete control of the game. And then the wheels just came off and, uh, yeah, left me, uh, you know, staring at the bed, staring at the ceiling last night when I got in my bed, asking why I care about what 18 and 19 year old and 20 year old uh, dudes uh, do in a basketball game. You know, it's amazing, Clay. We were talking about this and, and reading uh, just the, the, the post after the game with Michigan State losing and Tennessee and UCLA. And there's a lot of things. Well, this is who's coming back next year. And I'm thinking, do we know that about anyone in college sports? I don't even look at the class of someone anymore. Yeah. First off, I don't understand the COVID. You know, everybody's get. I think every senior for Tennessee could theoretically come back next year Probably. for a COVID year if they yeah. wanted. But I don't even look at it anymore because it's so transient. Yeah. Everyone can leave right away, and you're going to bring guys in, too. Yeah, it's basically perpetual free agency. Yeah. And I think in college basketball, it's even more prevalent than in college football because one or two guys – in college basketball can completely alter the overall chemistry of a team in the way that whatever you add in the larger uh, college football ecosystem is not necessarily the same. 
Clay, as far as leadership is concerned, the NCAA is not leading us yeah. down any path, right? Who would you tab as the leader of just – we'll start with college football, Who right? There need to be out. different people for each sport that are overall the commissioner, uh, you know, quote-unquote. Yeah, I mean, I think that Greg Sankey is the smartest person who is a commissioner of a major Power Five conference right now. And he has proven himself through the challenges of COVID – expanding and adding now Texas and Oklahoma and getting them integrated and figuring out what the SEC is going to look like going forward. If I were tasked with tapping someone who should be in charge of college athletics, I would say that uh, that Greg Sankey would be my pick. I also think, and this is I know these guys well, so I think there's a lot of people at Fox that are elite uh, Fox Sports and certainly Fox uh, larger company, but Fox Sports, I know a lot of these guys from Eric Shanks uh, on down, uh, who run Fox Sports, they were instrumental in UCLA and USC going to the Big Ten. So you've got Greg Sankey running the SEC, and I think the Big Ten network, which is owned majority by Fox, and the executives at Fox have been very good at managing uh, the Big Ten as well. So I, I think there's a there's an interesting balancing act because when you get to college athletics, it's not a pure business. Yeah. So the goal is not directly, hey, let's make as much money as possible. It's, hey, let's make as much money as possible while also creating a very fertile, larger college atmosphere. Because remember, only like Katie, who works with us uh, here at OutKick, is off the side here. She was on the road with me uh, for college football this past fall. She played field hockey. Um, and, you know, field hockey is important. In she the context, a lot of NIL yeah. money, I hear yeah. too. On well, field but hockey. yeah. Oh, sorry, I thought it was lacrosse, field hockey. Yeah, well, it was actually lacrosse. lacrosse but my, does pay better. So but my good. my point on this is the only two sports that make money anywhere are football and men's basketball. So if you were just running businesses, then you would say, okay, we're only going to do football and men's basketball because we're not going to lose money with everything else. But part of the larger collegiate experience is to have as many different athletic programs and as many different opportunities for uh, men and women to get scholarships doing things other than just football and basketball. So what, what my point on that in a larger context is sometimes it's easy. Like if you're running Walmart, you're like, hey, how do we increase profits by 10%? And it's just a business mechanics, right, behind it. It's a for-profit business. Ultimately, you get fired based on your ability to profit. College athletics is not that. And so I think one of the biggest challenges that college athletics has is trying to balance those two competing options where effectively you're running a nonprofit, which exists to try to create a larger value in the collegiate uh, undergrad experience. And then also you're running an incredibly profitable football and basketball program. And how do you reconcile those two sometimes conflicting ambitions? So Jack Swarbrick, who's the AD at Notre Dame, writes an op-ed about college sports as we know it's crumbling because of NIL. And there has to be regulation. There, you have to figure these things out. And it, it was well written. I, I watched the NCAA tournament. I don't think college sports is broken. Yeah. It's, it's highly entertaining. More people are watching it now than ever. So if there are cracks there in the competitive balance of the sport and where we're headed, at least from a play standpoint, when I watch this tournament, we're not seeing that. Yet. Well, I don't think, and I've made this argument for a long time. I don't think people watch and they're like, "Man, I would have really enjoyed this game," but that star player gets to drive a, a Range Rover around campus, yeah. and now I can't enjoy it as much. I do think Swarbrick's larger argument, and this is one that I've been making for a while: college athletics is ripe for disruption. 
and let me just give you an example of something which would fundamentally alter the competitive balance. Um, if Elon Musk worth you know two hundred billion dollars or whatever, let's pretend that he really cared about college athletics. If he said, "Hey, instead of buying Twitter for forty four billion dollars, I want to put a billion dollars into, let's say it is uh, you know Ole Miss." Like Elon Musk has just decided he is a monster uh, Ole Miss fan. And he wants to put a billion dollars into Ole Miss athletics. Lucky Ole Miss. Yeah, lucky Ole Miss. It could be anybody. It could be Illinois. Uh, it could be uh, you know Boston College. Whatever school you want to pick. They would get every great athlete because he could basically just create an NIL. And I'll you know like Tim Cook. I know uh, the head of Apple is a big Auburn fan. What if Tim Cook just said, "I'm sick of losing to Alabama. Screw Nick Saban. I I want to put a billion dollars into Auburn athletics." Well, Auburn would get the 25 best players, potentially, Mm -hmm. every single year. And so I think what Swarbrick and larger leadership in um, college athletics is pointing to is, first of all, we potentially have 50 different NIL laws. So I'll give you an example. If you're in California, a high school kid can get paid NIL money. If you're in Tennessee, I don't think they can, where where I live. Um, But if I were in California and I had one of my three kids was a stud, at 16 years old, suddenly he could make money from NIL. And so what's being created now is individual states are passing laws which allow their state institutions to have competitive advantages that other states might not. So if you're deciding, let's say, between going to Miami or UVA, uh, and suddenly in the state of Florida you have opportunities to make money that don't exist in, in Virginia, well, Virginia is at a lack of competitive balance when it comes to Virginia and Virginia Tech, which is why... They are arguing, and I don't know whether Congress is going to be able to do it, but they need one uniform set of rules that will govern NIL in all 50 states. Because if you end up with 50 different state laws, then there is going to be a competitive imbalance. And don't you also need the sports that make the money? You just need different rules for those sports? Well, I mean, look. As my, opposed to every other sport in the NCAA? My argument, and this is something that I think I'm probably several years ahead of, but my argument has been that it makes the most sense to spin off the for-profit university teams. And take it outside of athletics, if you are familiar with university hospitals, almost every university has a hospital. University of Michigan has a hospital. Vanderbilt University, where I'm an alum, has a Vanderbilt University hospital. And those used to all be directly connected to the university. Most of them are now spun off as for-profit institutions. So if I were trying to figure out, again, maximize money perspective, I would say, oh, the SEC and the Big Ten should spin off their football and basketball programs, make all of those athletes employees, and create a massive multi-billion dollar uh, uh, business that is predicated on the idea of those leagues are now for-profit ventures, and you're not trying to tiptoe up to this idea of, oh, so-and-so student just happens to play basketball here. No, you know, they're there as an employee of insert university. Now, basketball is challenging because there are 300-some-odd Division I basketball programs. I think we're rapidly trending towards an era where in football there's only, you know, 100 or so that play FBS highest level uh, competition there. Clay Travis with us on Outkick 360. Uh, Nick Saban earlier this week said there's no such thing as wrong place, wrong time. Yeah. Uh, Consequences for actions, regardless of what's going on. 
And today or yesterday, he says, actually had nothing to do with Nate Oates, that he doesn't, he's never watched or listened to a basketball press conference. I understand that. And I, I don't buy it. No, me either. That, that he knew exactly what the tenor was at the, not just not with the basketball program, but the perception of the athletic department. Well, and to be frank, if he's not aware of that, then Alabama should fire all of the SIDs, communication staff surrounding him. Because if I'm maniacally focused on just coaching college football, one of the, the only reason I'm paying you is to let me know about things that I should know that don't have anything to do with college. Yeah, prompt him before. Hey, he, just so you know, the university had to put out an official press release yeah. apologizing for comments yeah. relating to Brandon Miller. You should probably re- read this before, or let me read it to you before you go do your first press availability. And if Nick Saban truly didn't know, then that is an indictment of the larger Alabama athletic department not informing him, and also on a larger scale, a sign that they might be afraid to talk to him at all, which again raises the question then, okay, what are you being paid for? Because Nick Saban doesn't need you to help him answer a question about safety depth or (laughs) what he's doing on the defensive line. But but also, like if to me, if I'm Nate Oates – I'm a great coach, but I'm going to Nick Saban for advice on how to handle a situation like that. Yeah, maybe so. I mean, I, look, I, I think a lot of – said he went to Ray Lewis. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think a lot uh, – Nate Oates was a high school basketball coach 10 years ago. And I, I think a lot of times these guys have no idea how stories are going to play, and that is why the larger apparatus that surrounds them – Alabama probably employs 150 people in their athletic department. That's just a a rough guess. Maybe maybe it's far less, but I would think in different levels, right, raising money for a variety of different things. I don't think that's a crazy number, and it may be way higher than that. But what are you paying those people for if they don't allow your coaches to be putting their best foot forward? We have one PR guy, you know? Like if if Fox had put out some massively important press release uh, about a phrase that somebody used – and then I went out and used it intentionally, I'd be like, now I, sh- I-, I should be well-informed myself because I'm in the media. But if our PR guy wasn't like, hey, just so you know, this phrase is super sensitive, you know, don't use it, I would be like, what, you know, you, blo- you didn't help me do my job. Yeah. And that's ultimately what all those people are in the right. job of doing. They're trying to help Nick Saban do his job better, and I think they failed. Speaking of phrases that you shouldn't use, did you see the story with the Boston – Radio host, yeah, I did, said yeah. something, and then he claimed that he was trying to say Mila Kunis, the actress, and yeah, not Mina Kimes when he said it. I mean, I do that, like that is that is a that is a fascinating backtrack. The next day, I, I did not see that. That was a curveball in the explanation. Yeah, I mean, I, you, you've done live radio. I've done live radio yeah. for 15, 20 years or whatever. We um, once did a hot girl draft on a radio show. It was great so, radio, yeah. Um, and we, I mean, one of the my favorite segments was not even the hot girl draft. We had. Um, Somebody came out with a list. I don't remember who it was, but it was like the 10 hottest male athletes. Yes. Oh, yeah. And so uh, I think for the hot girl draft, part of it, we said only women. Like only yes. women. But th- that was kind of fun. But when the middle aged men would call in. So we said only men can analyze who they think the 10 hottest guys are. And then when they would call in and they would say, you know, like, you know, I, I think it's Roger Federer, I would be like, okay, you know, Jim. 
what do you find so sexy about Roger Federer? And it would be like some guy with a deep Southern accent. Great hair. You know, like, I, I really like really like his calves. You know, like <laughs> yeah. you're like, oh, what is it, you know, what is it about his calf muscle that you find so? Anyway, so that was really uh, that was really fun radio. But the point on it is just, um, you know, as you can well imagine. Sometimes people say stupid things on live radio. I'm surprised it doesn't happen more often. Jimmy G would win the draft now. He's incredibly good looking. And he has free sex for life offered to him from a chicken ranch. Which I said is just, I think a lot of women would offer that. He's got free sex for life. Basically, every single woman alive (laughs) also made the same offer. Clay, I said, for whatever reason, he enjoys, uh, again, he can have anyone. Yeah. He enjoys going to those who are literally paid to do it with anyone well i, I don't know about his and personal, he likes a pro but he, i don't know i don't know about his i know he dated the porn star yes. but i would just say i can understand if you know yourself Derek jeter was a good example of this he was like i want to focus on my uh athletic career and i know also that i don't have the discipline to be in a relationship and so he dated for like 20 years whatever it was and then uh, he eventually, when his career was over, got married. Now he's got kids. I mean, that seems to be kind of a smart way to handle uh, that. And maybe that's the Jimmy G pathway, too, is I, I can only imagine if you're – he's got several things that I don't. He's incredibly good looking. Uh, he's incredibly good at, at playing football. Uh, and, uh, and he's also worth several hundred million dollars. Any one of those things is super attractive to the opposite sex. You roll them all together – and Jimmy G is probably the most eligible bachelor, honestly, in, in the country right now. I, I think Brady and Giselle are getting back together at some point. I, uh, my, she came out and said that it wasn't a, an ultimatum she gave him about playing football or not. This has been going on for and two, that, so three years. She, you, she claims this has been a three- to four-year process where I they've grown it. apart. My thing is, I've got three kids. Like I, I saw the quote from Kanye where when he got divorced from Kim Kardashian, like he basically bought the house next door to her and leaves the door unlocked so the kids can come back and forth. Um, I can't imagine. So I'm, I'm putting myself in Brady's perspective now. I guess maybe he's the most eligible bachelor in America. You know. Yeah. Uh, but it's right uh, up there. Him and Jimmy G are next. He's got back. whatever it is, two or three kids. I can't imagine not waking up in the house with my kids. So regardless of what he and Giselle have going on in their personal relationship, to me, the kids are the most important part. So if I were Brady, I would want to be with Giselle and work out whatever issues we had because I would want to be there for my kids. Now, everybody's got different levels, and there's obviously a lot of people of different success levels whose parents got divorced and everything else. And uh, But that, to me, if I were Brady, like, he's 45, I mean – you know, uh, what's he looking for in life? I'm sure there's lots of 25-year-olds out there that would uh, There's a lot him. looking for him. Yeah. It's but not does, always about what he's looking for. Well, there's but, I mean, a lot looking for him. The question for him is, does he want to go back through life all over again and basically have a whole nother family? And maybe the answer is he does. I don't know. Or does he want to uh, to be there 100% for the kids that he already has? Well, he also parents an older child with uh, the I mean. actress, Bridget Moynihan, yeah. who's in New York. So, so he's been through this a little bit before, but um, that's one of those things where Kanye was like, I'm just going to build a house next door and uh, or buy the house next door and my, leave the front door unlocked all the time so my kids can come in. Kanye, great dad. 
This is what I learned from. Clark. I mean, I, I don't who know knew? about who knew I Kanye know, was such a good father. I don't know about any other Kanye parenting uh, tactics or or tips that I would necessarily. Well, that's a sign follow, of a great father, a very attentive one, dad. Yeah, that one living next to his kids and making sure that he's always there to the extent that it's true um, is uh, is one that I would uh, that I would acknowledge and uh, and and say is father would be of one year. of mine as well. Are you sticking around for another segment? Yeah, sure. I don't know your schedule here. No, I I, I got television later. Katie, tonight. can you stick around? He's good. Okay, good. Uh, approved. Katie's got the schedule. I yeah, think, so. I, I don't know. They run. If she me, says it's a go. It's a go. They run me around through the through the car wash here, so uh, I don't think I have show uh, television till a couple hours from now. More with Clay Travis coming up. Alka 360 rolls on. Our kick 360 rolls on live in New York with Fox. Clay Travis sitting in with us for uh, the rest of the hour. Yes. Clay, what's a bigger threat to the NBA? The lack of confidence that the game is not rigged at times, the officiating, or load management? <laughs> I think load management because at least you can argue about officiating. Uh, and everybody can have a different perspective on officiating. When – and, and this is where I think about it again from the perspective of a dad and also a kid who has grown up a sports fan. If you're not particularly wealthy, you might get to go to one game a year, right? You might get a Christmas present. You might get a birthday present. Uh, you know, you've been there, probably a lot of people watching or listening to us have, where you sit in the upper deck and you like watch to see whether other seats are going to be filled and whether you can sneak by the yeah. ushers to get down closer yeah. to the court, all those things. Um, to me, you are forfeiting the brand and uh, the love of the brand when you just decide, hey, I'm going to sit out because I'm going to manage the amount of load that I've got on my job. And the, the quote that I agree with, and it's not really a quote, it's, a, it's an argument, uh, Charles Barkley said, look, if you're going to sit out and you're healthy – you should have to go sit on the concourse and sign autographs for the entire game and pose for photos with fans. And I agree because, I mean, again, I just look at it from the perspective of I can't imagine in my head thinking, oh, there's some 12- or 14-year-old kid out there that loves me and wants to come watch me perform, and he only gets an opportunity to do that once. I owe him my best and uh, or her, whoever the kid is. And that, to me, is like the Jordan era. It felt like they were trying to persuade you to care, right? Yeah. I want you to like this sport. I want you to appreciate the work that we do, but I respect you. Um, and I, I always am conscious of that from an entertainer perspective. Look, I mean, I do three hours of radio every day, right? You guys know this. You've done it for a long time, too. My grandfather worked in a coal mine. Uh, he had an eighth grade education. Like, what we do isn't that hard in the grand scheme of things. Right. There are lots of people out there busting their ass every day. This is why I didn't take a day off, you know, during COVID, um, even though there was no sports going on. People have way more serious jobs. What I view, what I do, is help to make their day a little bit more entertaining, a little bit better educated, to be able to speak out maybe about things that they care about. If I don't put my best effort forward every day, I feel like I failed the audience. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm going to be great every day. Lots of days I'm going to suck. But, 
you know, when I think about it from my grandfather's perspective, most people when they wake off, wake up and the alarm goes off, they aren't excited to go do their job. We are something that takes them out of the serious things in their life. So if my grandfather can go work in a freaking coal mine, I can show up and talk every day and do my work as a part of OutKick. And so for me, I look at that in the NBA and I say, most of those guys in the NBA had dads and moms who had to bust their asses at jobs that they really didn't like. You get to play basketball for a living or baseball or football, whatever it is. You are the toy chest of life. You have an obligation to put on the best possible show for those people who are spending their hard-earned money to watch you. No doubt. So I look at that from the perspective of I just feel like you – and the same thing would be if you are uh, appearing on Broadway or if you are a performer. You know, Taylor Swift is going around right now performing in stadiums. We went and saw Adam Sandler perform recently. He uh, was awesome. He was fantastic. But to me, you have an obligation to go balls to the wall and be – the best possible version of yourself every time. And so when, so your question, like officiating failures, they happen. People are imperfect. We can argue about them. Not putting forth your full effort, I think that translates. I think that's why you saw the lowest NBA All-Star game ratings in on history because guys used to play a lot harder in the All-Star game. And at some point, if I know you don't care and you aren't going as hard as you can, then why should I give my time? Because everybody is competing right now for a limited amount of time, right? We all sleep X number of hours. And if somebody's watching this show right now, they're choosing to do that instead of something else. We're all in competition for eyeballs, for attention, for everything else. You may not like me, but I can promise to you that I am working as hard as I can every day. Like that's my uh, commitment to whatever audience we have. Um, And if I'm willing to do that, then I want the people that I'm spending my money on to be willing to do that, too. And it doesn't seem like that high of a ask when you get to do something fun to work hard at it. So that's my thing on the NBA. I think load management's a big uh, a big issue. I reduce the number of games. They could do that. Um, they're already uh, it's a I believe it's still a mandate through ABC if it's this featured game on Sunday. You can't sit out. Yeah, like but what that. I'm talking about is like it's a random Tuesday. No, I know. No, I know. Yeah, you, you only but get to go to one. They've game. tweaked it where they want to, but they're not. They're not in unison on doing it top to bottom. Well, I guarantee you that guys would play a lot more if uh, your salary was contingent on the number of games you played in, or bon- yes, or bonuses, right. or now, awards. And I, and I understand like by a the minimum way, amount of games. yeah, I understand if you tear your ACL. I'm not right, talking about right. guys that are legitimately injured because yeah. they're trying their hardest. I mean, like. You just uh, you just had a game, and it's a turnaround game, and you're a little bit tired, and you don't feel like it. Um, I think you should suck it up. And I think the reason why the NBA was fantastic was the tagline in the '90s when we were you know kids growing up. I feel like the Jordans, the Birds, the Magic Johnsons, the Carl Malones, the John Stocktons, that era, they felt like they needed to put forward their best effort to make you care. And I think a lot of guys now are cashing checks based on the sweat equity those guys put in and not putting in the same effort to grow the brand. And not only that, you could count on when you bought your ticket two months prior to tip-off, 
those guys were going to play if the game was on the road. Look, right? Adam Sandler's a good example. I think entertainers know that more than athletes at times. Who are entertainers? That they, they are there basically. to go for They're, it and exactly. put on a big show for people that paid money to go see them. I'll give you. We an ex- saw that with Adam Sandler. I'll He's not you, taking nights off when he does that. I'll show. give you an example. When I was a kid, the Chicago Bulls were uh, touring in a preseason game, and they played at Vanderbilt's Memorial Gym. If Michael Jordan had decided he didn't want to play in that preseason game, I would have been crushed. It's a preseason game. It doesn't matter at all. He showed up because the audience was there to see him perform. And I feel like that era understood that they were entertainers but also had more of a connection to the fact that they also are workers and they have an obligation to do it. And I don't think this is just connected to the NBA. I think a lot of people don't work very hard at what they Clay, do. Clay, thanks, man. Yep, appreciate, appreciate it. We're here because of Clay and uh, yep. Fox. We appreciate uh, Clay bringing us up here. We wish we had a better result last night. And he's Rick off Barnes, for the baby. rest of the car wash and then dinner. Late. Never going to happen. Headlines next on Outkick 360.